I, I came into life the daughter of, I love to say, a preacher and a teacher. And my, my parents always taught me that my job was to leave the world a better place than when I entered it. And so I always knew I was going to be in an organization that was working toward, toward change and improving the world that we live in. Hello, Lauren. Hi, Kelsey. How are you? I am doing well. How are you today? Uh, doing great. I'm ready for uh, spring to actually come, even though it's been announced on a calendar. It's still pretty cold. But other than that, doing great. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm in a current state where the rain is following me wherever I traveled from Las <laughs> Vegas to Charlotte, hoping it's sunny in Baltimore. Well, sunnier days ahead. Yeah, it's coming. I know it. We have to believe it. We just finished recording another episode of Campus Confidential. Who did we have today? We had Dr. Leah Barrett, who is the president of Northeast Community College in Nebraska. Uh, and uh, I'm really pleased we had her with us today. I, I want to tell our listeners just a little bit about uh, Leah, about President Barrett. She, as I mentioned, is president of Northeast Community College in Norfolk, Nebraska since 2020. It's surprisingly um Large. I, I didn't know that it serves 20 counties. There are 6,000 students, uh, 60 education sites that this college serves on four different and four different campuses. So, um, you know, the scope of what she's handling is very large. And I think a lot of people don't realize how significant and how much scope community colleges uh, often have. So, really, really excited she's with us today. And I think hearing you talk about, um, the land that it covers, it gives her the time for some alone, quiet time in the car that I think yeah. is much needed that leaders <laughs> yearn for. Yeah. Yeah. She she talked about that. I think our, our listeners will hear how important it is for leaders to find that thing they need to be effective leaders in public roles. And uh, she, she gives us little insights in the podcast about, in this episode, about how she does that for herself. Very self-aware, reflective about what she needs to be successful. And authentic in everything that she shared with us today. I feel like she is, as you stated, self-aware and then very confident in who she is and what she brings to the table. And you'll hear that in today's conversation. And I believe if you are around her, you see that daily. Shall we give it a listen? Yes, let's go. Let's go. Well, President Leah Barrett, thank you so much for joining us. We're honored you're with us today. I think we're going to have some fun, and uh, we're really, really delighted, Kelsey and I uh, both, that you're with us today. Um, we love to start our interviews with this question. Uh, and it's basically, how do you describe your job to a rideshare driver? Now, before you answer, I know you probably say president of Northeast Community College, but assume they say, well, what does that mean? What do you do? How do you describe it in that short little rideshare drive to, uh, to your job? So usually those rideshare drives are about 25 minutes. So here we go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I would share with you that uh, as a president of a college, my role and responsibility is, is really to advocate and talk about our institution. And so I really have an incredible job 
in in my in in the opportunities that I have to talk about our institution with elected officials, with community leaders, with uh, educational leaders, our superintendents, our principals, um, our county commissioners, our state senators, our our Congress, our people that you know serve in Congress in Washington D.C. So I have to do a lot of listening when I'm on campus so that I can tell the story of our students and our faculty. Yeah, that's pretty good. It didn't take 25 minutes. No, it didn't. <laughs> so the the longer version, if I could then, yep. t- talk a little bit about your journey. How did you get to become president of Northeast? You know, sometimes it's just being at the right place at the right time. Um, what I will share with you is, is as a young person in college, um, I I majored in business administration because I just wanted to grow up and be the boss. And uh, I had no idea what I wanted to lead, where I wanted to to go. Um, I, I came into life the daughter of, I love to say, a preacher and a teacher. And my, my parents always taught me that my job was to leave the world a better place than when I entered it. And so I always knew, I didn't use the phrase social justice at the time. However, I really did know I was going to be in an organization that was working toward toward change and improving the world that we live in. And, and so being in college showed me that maybe I could lead a college. And, and I had a wonderful opportunity right out of my undergrad to start my career at the University of Wyoming. And I worked in the Wyoming Union. And I had incredible supervisors and mentors that opened my eyes to the role of the college union in higher education. And it did not take me long to learn that that this was the place for me. It was a place that helped us to build community on campus. It was a place where all people felt welcome. And it was my role and responsibility to meet those foundational, um, that foundation of what we do. And so I had the opportunity in my life to work all over the country in, in the field of college unions. And so quickly I started at the University of Wyoming, then I went out to Arizona State for a couple of years. Then I, then I took a tour uh, over to the Midwest and worked at Valparaiso University um, in, in Northwest Indiana, private school, a very different experience. Um, and then from there, I, I took a job at Boise State and I, I served as the uh, director of the student union and a few other responsibilities for 10 years. Um, and then I, in that process, I met a guy from Long Island and uh, decided we needed to uh, go move east, not too close to Long Island, but uh, close enough that we could get there in a day. So we moved to Rochester, New York, and I worked at uh, SUNY Brockport for about eight years. Um, and then I had a chance to go home to Wyoming and, and be the vice president for a community college in the state of Wyoming, be a little closer to my parents at the Northern Wyoming Community College District. And, and then from there, I thought, you know what, I think I think I want to be a president. And uh, I applied for the job at Northeast. And this is where I sit today, serving in this role since January of 2020. I have the infamous title of being one of the COVID presidents, meaning that uh, we started just a few days before COVID came um, to the United States. And uh and I and I I just love it. I love being here. I I love Northeast Nebraska in a way that that I never imagined. And uh, it's really really 
quite fulfilling and fun to be a president. So I, I feel like I heard you say you would run a college someday. Was it part of your vision to become a president or did it happen later? For you, I would that, say it that happened. Realization? Yeah, yeah, Kelsey, I would say it happened later um, because I really was focused on being the director of a college union. I loved it. I hate to throw Lauren under the bus. He's a few years older than me. You know, Lauren was a college union director. He was someone that I saw at our professional association um, meetings. There were others too. And I was like, you know, I can do that. And, and that was my first, I would say, accomplishment was, was to be the director of the union. And I loved it. And I would tell you today, and I tell my people today, once you're a college union director, you're always a college union director. I still talk the language. I, I still use it as my foundation for what I do. Yeah. And, and I should say, and you were a good one. And I, um, listeners may not know, I've had a chance to um, do some research with, uh, you know, on the importance of student engagement and, and learning outcomes uh, through ACUI and the college union work. So I had a chance to work with, with uh, President Barrett very closely. So um, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It wasn't till after I got another title that I thought maybe I could, I could do this presidency. And I had, I had a supervisor that, that said, Leah, I really think you should do this. You've got to get your doctorate. So I got my doctorate quite later in my career. It was when I was in New York and, and I got a doctorate, um, um, in an accelerated doctoral program from a school called St. John Fisher college. So I did that later after I was really encouraged to, to, to do so. Let me ask you about that doctorate. Um, I th- is it an executive leadership? Is that right? Yes. Yes. Can you can you talk a little bit about why executive leadership mm-hmm. and not, let's say, a higher ed or or, or business to your earlier interest, yeah. and maybe what that degree, that pursuit of that degree, taught you or didn't teach you about leadership and practical ways, the way you have to face your presidency now. I am the poster child for St. John Fisher College and its executive leadership program. And I will and I will say that the neat thing about living in Rochester is you had choices. So I looked at four doctoral programs, all just fantastic. University of Buffalo's higher education program, University of Rochester's program. Um, oh, I should say there's only three, not four, three. And then St. John Fisher's program, all very different. And the reason that I chose St. John Fisher is, is tells you a little bit about me. I was very worried that if I went to a traditional program, I would never finish my dissertation because I loved my work. And doing that dissertation takes that self-discipline. And so the program at St. John Fisher, you were started your dissertation within the first month of your coursework. And so wow. you were working on your dissertation at the same time you were taking classes. And so when you completed, you were done with both the dissertation and the coursework. And that was a two and a half year accelerated program on the weekends, in the evenings um, to get that done. And in that program, I kind of call it an MBA on steroids because it really was a, a, a leadership program preparing you to be a CEO. And, and it was multidisciplinary. So my cohort and my classmates were from all over 
um, um, the, the, the spectrum of fields. We had nurse leaders, we had um, K-12 or P-12 leaders. We had um, uh, one of my colleagues was the executive assistant to a CEO for a large manufacturing firm. And so we were able to use the multiple examples of our experience to, to learn from each other, learning how to work with boards, learning how to understand um, equity in the workplace, how to do um, action research, and, and really understand how you use data to inform your decisions in an evaluative manner. Um, and so the coursework really was creating that toolbox to, to be a CEO. Um, and, and so, and, and then our dissertation, we were able to be more, um, um, match our discipline more in our dissertation. So I did my dissertation on the role of the college union. And so my dissertation committee was made up of people with doctorates in higher education. Um, and, and so we were able to talk that language of higher education through my dissertation work. And the coursework was much more multidisciplinary in focus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you pull from that coursework in your current job? Um, wow. I feel like I almost pull from that coursework every day. You know, I thought, I, I believe that the coursework was a combination of, of reading text, writing, and then working with current leaders in the city of Rochester. And so I, I believe that it really opened my eyes to, um, what it really was to be a CEO. And, and the, the reality that it's, that it's often lonely because you're the only one, um, it, it helped me to understand the, how you take the, the, you know, I had an MBA going into that executive leadership program and we, we did a lot of reading and talking about being a leader. And, and so you, you would take what you were reading and then you have a, a leader come in and talk to you about it. And so it made things real. I mean, I don't even know how else to say it. It, it, it made things real because we were studying to become a CEO. And, and so you learned, you learned how to listen. You learned the importance of a board. You learned the, 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 the realities of the challenges that you face and the difficult decisions that you're making when, when the people that are reporting to you vary from the people that are giving you feedback in the community of what they want and how you balance those, those multiple stakeholders in your work. Yeah, I think it's fascinating to hear you talk about that you study to be a CEO because I feel like in higher ed, a lot of times when we think about presidents and people running the university, um, it's so focused on the education of students, which is core to the mission and the work we do, right? Right. But when you get to that level, you're running a business. You have an entire city of things that you are in charge of, that you're yeah. running. And yeah. so how do you maybe talk to us a little bit about, is there a moment in time where you've have an example or a story around meeting the students' needs, the community's needs, and the business needs of the organization that you are responsible for. So I'm going to use what's happening in at Northeast Community College today because I think it's a, a, a really 
powerful, impactful, and truly existential situation that we're, we're dealing with in the state of Nebraska right now. We have a new governor, and the new governor um, loves community colleges. And, and Governor Pillen is, really understands and recognizes the role of the community college in, in building community and, and supporting industry in our region. And we are funded through property tax revenue, which is 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 a tough sell as the valuations of property increase. And so we've had quite a bit of feedback over the past few years about property taxes are too high. And so governor suggested we move our funding formula and we change that funding formula to move us to dependent on um, state aid. And we we shared with him that maybe that wasn't such a good idea. And we had had multiple conversations for the past two months about that funding source and how the funding source will fundamentally change how our students access us. And the, the reality of the role of, of the community college and the importance of the community college in the higher education landscape of the state of Nebraska is we need to keep our tuition as low as possible. Because most of our students that we serve are have limited income. They're first-generation college students. They're new Americans. They are people that are, are looking to um, find an opportunity for social mobility. So it is about the student at the core. But everything we've been talking about is the management of the institution, how it's funded, and, and, and how it will operate in the future. You know, and... In the space of about the last five minutes, I think what we've acknowledged is there are these business orientations and skills that are required. You talked about your journey and why you chose the executive leadership doctorate. And at the same time, the work you're doing as a president with uh, community stakeholders and the governor, though there's political skills. So you've got these business skills and and, and, and political skills. I'm wondering if you could talk for a minute about what are the things that a president has to focus on or the skills a president needs uh, of a college university that most people may not realize because they only see you from the perspective that they have at the institution. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about what, what are the things people don't know about the presidency and that leadership obligation? I would say one of the things they that they see me talk a lot. <laughs> and I need, I would like people to understand more that I listen more than I talk because they see me always standing up in front of a room and sharing our story or kicking off an event when everything that's led to what I'm saying is from listening and reading and, and being in a room. And, and I, I really think that people don't understand how important that is, especially in a small state like Nebraska, there's not even 2 million people here. We are there. We're a small state. And and so I do need to understand what's happening on the other side of the state. I need to know what's happening in Lincoln every day, our capital city. Um, And and I get that through listening, not through talking. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. And do you suspect that um, those who live in the political realm that is, you know, in the legislature or in even you know, chambers of commerces and and that sort of thing, understand uh, how much time and how nuanced and complex the academic world you live in is? And do you suspect that the academic folks who live in that world understand 
the politics? And do you play, you know, how do you balance those those worlds as president? You know, um, I think that is one of the biggest challenges is balancing those worlds because I don't think there's an understanding. So here's a great example. You'll have an industry professional looking for um, some curriculum. And they, they would never use that word curriculum, but I need employees to do this. And and so for them, they talk to the president and they think the president's going to come back and tell a faculty member, I need you to teach this. And that is not how we all know that is not how academe works. We need to. Um, and, and, and so those happen more often than not. We're working with some industry professionals right now in, in really some upskilling opportunities. One of the biggest deficits in our workforce right now in the state of Nebraska are manufacturing maintenance employees. So those are the individuals that are going to come onto your, your manufacturing floor and fix the machines that are creating the product that you're, that you're producing. And that skill can be taught in a two-year program. However, um, we don't have a lot of 18 to 21-year-olds that are ready to go on the floor and fix all those machines even after their program. What we know is our manufacturing folks um, identify people that are working on their floor and say, boy, that person has the potential to do more. And so they want us to create programs to help upskill those employees to those maintenance technician positions. And we wish that we could have that program overnight. But what we have to be able to do is, is what, it, what, is the, what is that curriculum and what are those needs that, that they have? And knowing that even in the small town that I live in, we have about um, eight, uh, six to eight larger manufacturers and several small ones. Well, our program can't just focus on one manufacturer. It has to be able to build the skills that, to support all of those firms in upskilling those employees. And so, again, how do you help our faculty to, to be on board to do some tweaking and development with their curriculum while your our manufacturings are just saying, let's make it happen. And so you've got to use those skills of bringing people together and making sure that, that people are listening, that we recognize that we need to use continuous quality improvement concepts. Let's try some things. Let's see if we're um, a, a, a building that, that, that skill-ready individual um, and, and then evaluate it and come back and try again. So so how do you do that? What are the what are the tactical things? You've got resistant staff or faculty or colleagues or uh, you have this clarity. I mean, what are the things you do as a leader to to get beyond those things, to bring people to a different understanding or, or to check your own assumptions about its need? You know, I come back to uh, let's get back to how we work with student organizations. It's group development theory. How do we bring them together, identify the common purpose recognize that we've always got to keep that common purpose in mind and keep referring back to it. As you sit down together and, and listen to the needs, listen to understand the limitations that we have, um, how do we, um, um, the limitations that we have, the perspectives, the content knowledge that both the professionals and our faculty bring to the table. And, and you have to build trust. And so you do, you use those basic, you know, 
forming, norming, storming, and performing concepts. And you keep returning to those because you're going to have that storming and you've got to let that happen because effective conflict resolution really helps you get to the same point. And you, you just keep the, the goal in mind. Um, I, I would tell you that that is building skills of our, of our deans, our academic leaders and our vice presidents to, to work through group dynamics and work through group development is critical when, when you're working um, with our industry partners and, and our faculty to, to build curriculum that's supporting your, your service area. Listening to you talk, I've heard the word loneliness. Uh, I hear the word, I don't know if you said the word pressure, but I interpreted that story as pressure <laughs> um, sitting in your role. Um, the need to man manage and balance multiple perspectives, needs, desires, all the things. So what do you do to take care of yourself to handle all of that in your world? Maybe I should have you make some suggestions for me. Um, I could probably use some of those. Um, no, I, um, I would tell you that I need time alone um, is, is huge for me. And what I have found right now is the time alone is usually in a car driving back and forth to uh, different communities in my service area and our capital city. That time alone has been unbelievable. I always have a notebook next to me. I usually can't read what I wrote, but if I write it down, I will remember it. Um, and, and, and so I think that um, reflective time is critical. Um, getting good sleep is, is very important. Um, taking care of yourself, what you eat, what you drink, what you, what you um, um, exercise and, and fitness and wellness is so important. You also need um, a critical eye. And, and I would say to you, I'm so fortunate to have a, a, a husband and partner that, that really believes in what I do. And, and so I have somebody that's not in my office every day that I really can confide in and talk to and process with. Um, and, and I really need that, that to, to face every day. So when you're in that car by yourself, are you listening to music? Is it silent? Podcasts? Like what's happening in the car? It's usually silent. Silence I, is golden. Silence is golden. And my husband laughs at me. Like if I stay in a hotel, I usually never turn on the TV. And so if we're in a hotel together and he turns on the TV, I'm almost annoyed. Like, what are you doing? Um, and he's like, well, don't you have the TV on when you're here alone? No, never. I don't even turn it on. Um, I forget what town I'm in sometimes, you know, um, and it, I, the silence helps me so much because I'm such an extrovert. So I process out loud. And so the silence gives me, gives me that chance to, to, to let my thoughts percolate a little versus that continual talking that that is very common in an extrovert so it's almost the opposite uh, i used to we formerly lived in a subdivision that had about almost 200 homes and it was a very social place and i remember um uh i would come home on fridays and i was just spent because i'd spent 
all those hours in conversation with people, just high touch kind of experiences, right? And uh, the there'd always be a barbecue or a so, and I just I couldn't go. I just couldn't. I just couldn't do it. And so my wife got very accustomed to explaining, he's just tired. He'll come later. So the si- for me, the silence was, I-, I just needed to come down off of the the high social kind of environment. Is is Does that fill that need for you? Is that what that is? Since you're so on? Lauren, you did such a great job of describing that. Absolutely. You just need to be able to rest. You know, and, and I do, I love, I love to be with friends and family and, and be talking and having a beer and all those kind of things. But you've got that, that time, I cherish it more in my, in, in my time being a president than, than I have in any other role is, is that time alone and that time to just reflect and let my mind wander. So when you you were in previous roles and didn't have as much need maybe to travel as frequently, yep. how did you find how did you fill that need you had when you were in those other roles? Um, I probably um, I'm a I'm a morning person, and so I really like my time. I remember when my kids were were infants, and they would wake up. I usually get up about five in the morning. And if they would get up before about six, I'd be so frustrated because it was like they were invading my time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that time for me, this um, I probably work more during that time now. And in previous jobs, it was really that time when when I could spend reflecting um, mm. and, and having some peacefulness in my day. Yeah, very good. So I've heard you talk about um, a partner, husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have two children? Two. I do. Yeah. So, um, and you're president of a community college. Sounds like you might be a woman who has everything. And my question is, what does that statement, what comes up for you when you hear, are you a woman that has everything? Do you find balance? How did you get to where you are? Kind of that Absolutely. rhetoric. Um. I would tell you, I am so fortunate. I am truly the, I believe I'm, I'm one of the most fortunate people in the world because I do have everything. And, and I remind myself of that, of that every day. I would share with you though, my family's, the sacrifice my family has made is my husband has been a stay at home dad since my first child, since both my children um, were adopted. And, and since we adopted our, our first son, he's been a stay at home dad. And I got to tell you, I thank him every day. Um, he, I don't even know how to use the vacuum. Um, I love to cook. He cleans up. I, he does everything for our boys and, and uh, my boys are, are just wonderful young men. And, and it's because they've spent, they've been able to spend so much time, um, with a parent and I am, I don't know how I would do, especially how I would do right now. And they're in high school. I don't know how I would do what I get to do for this region and Northeast Community College if 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 he was working full time in a job even half as half as complicated as mine. Um, it's amazing, and and I am so fortunate and am so thankful every day for that. So those those boys know you as mom. 
not President Barrett, but of course you're a role to a lot of people. And I'm wondering, uh, this is a question about authenticity, I guess. And I was reading um, reading an article in Inside Higher Education about a community college president who wears a, um, a certain shoe brand uh, because it keeps him grounded. It helps him remember where he's from. It helps convey that he's still uh, down to earth and these sorts of things. And I'm wondering for you, um, that's maybe less hard at home because your mom or partner or wife at work in your leadership roles, wherever you've been, what are the things you've done to express your individuality and your authenticity, keeping it real uh, as it were? Wow. That's a great question. Um, I'm, I'm going to share a story I had about six months ago. Um, uh, an individual who's a vice president right now was a finalist for a presidency. And she called me on the phone as she was preparing for her interview. And it was at her alma mater. So she still had some people there that knew her. And, and so we started to have the conversation literally about what she was going to wear and how to be presidential. And I quickly said, I don't want to reveal her name, but I almost did. Um, uh, I just, I just said to her, I said, if you try to be presidential, whatever you believe that is, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to be authentic. That was the word I used. I said, you have to bring your authentic self to the table. And, and I would share with you that what that is something that makes me different is my authentic self is at the table all the time. I am, I'm a little dramatic. I talk with my hands, as you can see, I, um, I don't, I am, I'm very approachable. I spend time popping into people's offices. I don't pop into classrooms. I don't think that's appropriate. I don't want to interrupt people, but I pop into people's offices. They will see me on the weekend, not dressed presidential. I love baseball caps and I wear them all the time. I love snow caps. I love winter caps. I love hats. I wear them all the time. I, I've got to be me in this work and, and, there are times when I, 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 I struggle a lot with even being called President Barrett. I struggle with um, getting any kind of special treatment. It's extremely uncomfortable for me. Um, and, and so to me, the authenticity, I, I don't want to give up. I'm from Wyoming. I am a cowboy, cowgirl through and through. I, I, I can't, I don't ever want to give that up. And, and so I don't, and I, I do, I think that it's, it's surprised some people that I am so approachable and so engaged and sit down with students all the time when I'm walking by and I say hello and I, I, I don't use self-deprecating humor, but I do tease myself. We make fun of my height all the time. I'm very short. Um, my colleagues on my cabinet, most of them are more than a foot taller than me. The pictures are just awful and we just make fun with it and have a good time, you know? And, and so I think I don't, I, I, and bless the person that wears shoes. I don't need shoes. It's, it's, I, I can't give it up. I can't give up who I am and, and where, where I was brought up and 
So that's kind of easy for me to, to stay true to myself. The good news is on a podcast, we all can look the same height. <laughs> Right. Look like the tall- <laughs> I think you look like the tallest one on this. So just do all the things via podcast. You'll be fine. So that makes me wonder, what were you like in college? What was college life for you all about? All right. So you all gave me that question in advance and I busted out laughing because I don't know if you want to know <laughs> the true Leah in college. Um, oh, we most certainly do. Okay. Let's just be real. I drank Bush Light. And I will tell you, I had not seen bush light till I moved back to Nebraska. And so the fur and bush light is everywhere here. And I rem- I took pictures and I sent it back to all my college friends because that is the beer we drank in college. Um, I didn't really realize it still existed. I hope that doesn't sound snotty, but um, um, I loved college so much. I've never left. Let's be real. I loved it. Um, I had multiple groups of friends. So I was a very engaged student. I was in student government. I was in a business fraternity. I was in honor organizations. And so I had that group of friends that we were making the, making good, doing good work at the university of Wyoming. Then I had my high school friends. So in a place like Wyoming, you go to college and you all play intramurals and then every person you competed against becomes your best friend because you all want to be on intramural teams together so you can win. So I had my, 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 my hometown friends and then our friends that, you know, we'd been playing high school sports against for years. I had that group of friends. And then I worked three jobs. I had a full-time summer job and then part-time I worked in human resources. Um, I worked for Cowboy Football and then I worked in the College of Business. And so I had my friends from those areas. I, I never missed class. I didn't get the greatest grades. I never missed class. I made a commitment to my father that I would always go to class. Some days were much more difficult than others. Um, but, but I just loved it. I took advantage of everything from, you know, um, having a, a, an internship in Holland to every, didn't miss a home football game to, um, um, you know, being recognized in the honor societies that I was, I loved college. So I, I, and I love seeing college friends. I make time when I'm in a town to, to reconnect with people and, and tell great stories and laugh about the the crazy times we had in college. So it was great. It sounds like you got the full experience. Circle it back around. I want to, first of all, congratulate you for this, but there's a question related to the fact that um, I think in 2020, Mackenzie Scott, right, gave the the college, was it $15 million? Fantastic. And I read about this, and one of the things I read was, uh, among other qualifiers, was that there's a track record of selecting strong executive teams at at uh, at the college. Was it? It was Northeast, right, where this occurred. Okay. It was. It was Northeast. Yeah. So congratulations. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit. How how do people? How do you know how to hire strong teams? Like, what do you look for? What are the qualities that matter? What's the track record that? you know, that is relevant to selection? What are the things that are not on paper? You know, that kind of stuff when you're, when you're picking people. 
Absolutely. You know, uh, um, recruitment and then selection of employees is one of the most important activities that a CEO or a leader does, uh, you know, a person in position. Now, I, I don't want to say leader necessarily, but a manager. It's one of the most important things that you do. And so you've really got to make sure before you ever talk to a person is spend that time recognizing what you need in that position. And, and I'm going to, I'll share an example of, of one of the, the leadership positions that I hired. Um, and, and it's the CFO. So, so this is a great example of, of, um, my, my approach to hiring and the things that I do. So I believe that the CFO at an institution needs to be the most trusted person that, that you have on your team because their responsibility is, is for the financial um, success of your organization. Um, they also are often, in my case, it was, it, it was um, also have the responsibility for any risk management work. And so for me, I needed to ensure that the person was someone that I could identify was of high integrity, or I don't know if you can make integrity high. This person needed to be integral. They <laughs> needed to have a, I wanted to find someone that had experiences where they had built trust, demonstrated trust, were able to show confidence and keep confidence. Um, and, and that, they were able to look at the big picture. I would share with you, I had people on the campus and people that I worked with, with a, we do that search committee model that, that wanted somebody that was really good with spreadsheets mm-hmm. and really good with accounting and maybe had a CPA. And, and so I needed to spend time with that search committee, helping them understand they're going to supervise people that work on spreadsheets. They are going to supervise the people with the CPA. They are going to supervise the people that will manage our physical facilities. What we need is somebody that has the ability to to recognize the responsibility that those people hold and help get barriers out of their way so that they can do their job. Mm -hmm. And so the job description was very different than what I believe was expected of the people that were, were going to be helping me and give feedback on that selection process. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that it, it comes to that foundation of making sure you understand what you are looking for, where you, I think in higher ed, we always have to talk about where you need to come from higher ed. We have some positions where you need people that come from higher ed to do this work that have built that history of leadership in higher ed. And then you have positions where you need your content expertise that could come from somewhere else than higher ed. And so you really need to each time identify that those, those skill sets that you need. And, and so for my team, that's really what, what I have done to build that team. I've, I've um, kept some folks that were in the position before, and I've been able to bring in other leaders and, 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 you also, the, the, the best money I spent is on building my team. And, and we spend significant amount of time going away from our institution and, and doing work that builds trust. 
We need to be able to be open and honest with each other. We need to be prepared to have conflict with civility. We need to be prepared to um, call each other out and hold each other accountable. And, and that takes building that trust. And, and that you don't do by just doing your job every day. You do that with time spent with each other, identifying and having a shared vision um, and shared priorities. Mm-hmm. But I think you, you build trust by, by building an environment and a culture where conflict is, is practically encouraged and conflict is disagreement is encouraged and it is, it is welcomed. And I think that's one of the ways that I build trust is that I, I, I reinforce, I want to hear from you when you disagree with me, please tell me. And, and when a situation happens and maybe it's behind a closed door, I oftentimes ask the person if I can share what just happened between us with others so that they can see that, that my true authentic self is truly about disagreement brings us to a better solution. And, and so I think that's one of the ways that people would, would, would say that I, that I work to build trust is making sure that, 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 that we have those conflicts, um, when, when, when we can in the open, but when we need to in private, we can also talk about them and, and how we resolve them and came to a better place. Yeah, I think that's, um, I love the talking about it with the group so everyone can, um, see it in action. And I think that speaks to the culture that you might be creating. So when you talk about your team development pieces that you go offsite, can you give a little taste of what you do offsite? What, what happens behind Absolutely. those doors with that leadership team? Absolutely. I think one of the things I do is I have an outside consultant we work with. So we've been working with a consultant now for two and a half years on this work. She has gotten to know us very well. She does independent work with each of my team. Um, and provides them different levels of um, support for their teams, depending upon what their needs are. Um, but I don't believe I should be leading that work because then I won't be a participant. So we have really utilized um, just a wonderful woman. Her name's Linda Cry, who who works with us and and really has has helped us to be a stronger leadership team. Yeah. You know, I really, really appreciate you sharing that story because I've benefited from coaches, external coaches in my career and teams I've been part of have. And I think it's underappreciated. And for many leaders, almost something they don't want to talk about as, as if there's something wrong when really all it does is make you stronger and better and more intuitive. And so I, I really appreciate you sharing that that's normalized yep. for your team. Absolutely. Wonderful. You know, I want to maybe close us out too by by saying you, you talked about integrity just a little bit ago when you were talking about hiring and I was noticing that the president of the Wyoming Community College District said as you departed for uh, Nebraska that we need in this country presidents who can lead institutions and who have honor, integrity, wisdom, compassion, and caring, and that you're perfect for that job. And that's clearly come through today. Your integrity, what you look for in people matches what you're bringing to us today. Your caring, your compassion through your story you just shared. And uh, we're really, really grateful that you'd spend the time with us and that you're doing the the good work that you are in, in higher education. So thank you.
hey, Lauren, I think it's time for some extra credit. This always frightens me just a little when you suggest this. <laughs> it makes me the most excited. So okay. <laughs> after our conversation with President Barrett, I've been thinking a little bit about college jobs or jobs that you take to get by, right? You need money to survive when you're young and in -hmm. life. So when you think back about jobs you've had over your lifetime, what are some of the good ones? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, I grew up in a small town and I don't know if it's like this in every small town, but when you're um, a working class family in a small town, you start early. And I, I, my first job was at Gerald Boyer's dairy farm, shoveling manure. Um, And, you know, it's, and everything's better after that. Every job you ever have is better after that. So, you know, my my beginning was uh, quite auspicious that way. What about you? Well, well, one of my first jobs was working in a dental, high, uh, like an oral surgeon's office where I cleaned the equipment after oral surgeries. So Oof. that was quite great. But you just said, you just said, I work in a dentist's office and that that's impressive. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I, w- I wore scrubs for kicks. <laughs> <laughs> but in college, one of the jobs that I attempted to hold for like two weeks, mostly because I liked the perks, uh, was a tanning salon. Oh. I mean, you got free tanning sessions. So, I mean, this skin needed all the color it could possibly get. <laughs> Growing up in Illinois, not a lot of winter sunshine anyways. <laughs> it was such a terrible idea, but I did it for like, I made it like two weeks in the day. Was that a college salon. job or high school oh, job? It was, a, it was college. College job. Yeah. yeah. That's that's a great job back then. I mean, I don't yeah, mean right? I think I date anybody myself. here, but yeah. <laughs> or you dated me. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> or myself. I remember them, you know, right? Oh, well... I think they all led us to be great leaders in the jobs we're in today. What do you think? I I had, uh, with my master's degree in education, um, my now wife got a job offer. So we moved and we had an agreement. The first person to get a job offer, that's where we'd go. I didn't have a job. so But I needed a job. We had to pay rent. And um, so I worked at Hickory Farms and I cut sausage and cheese and offered samples to people walking by and they were very excited because they fancied me as management material and they had me pegged to manage the kiosk in December, you know, around the holidays, right in the middle of the mall. But I got a job at, at Kutztown University right before that and uh, bailed on the on the sausage gig. <laughs> they were so disappointed. <laughs> they were actually. They were a little disappointed. <laughs> Who's going to lead the sausage cutting team? Yep. <laughs> yep. Sure. I learned a lot. Confidential is presented by Compass Group, produced by Corey Insko and Jen Fisher, with your hosts, Kelsey Harmon-Finn and Lauren Rollman.